If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, and I will begin reading in verse 7 and read through to verse 16, though our focus today will be on verses 10 through 16. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I want to begin with a question to set the stage or prepare the table, as it were, for this message. The question is this, are you hungry this morning? Did you have a good meal for breakfast? Some of us probably had something like a muffin or a Pop-Tart, breakfast of champions. And some of us may have had bacon and eggs, the real breakfast of champions. Some of us may have gone without But are you hungry? How do you feel? How long has it been since you really felt real hunger? I sometimes skip breakfast because I'm trying to be more healthy. And so I regularly go 18, 19 hours without food. But that's not real hunger. Uh, Most of us have never known real hunger. If you've been on a real fast, not a juice fast, like a water-only fast... Uh, Maybe you have felt real hunger for a time, but after your body catches up and realizes what you're doing, it switches to consume its own fat, and so you don't feel as hungry anymore, and it is more bearable. Have you known real hunger? I think of uh, my great-grandparents during the Depression who would eat bullweed or rehydrate leather from shoes to eat it, some people during the Depression. That's real hunger. Believe it or not, you are very hungry right now. You may not feel it. You may not even be aware of it. But we are all hungry for something. Your heart, your soul, your inner man, the very you of you, has to be fed. And what kind of food are you feeding it, your, yourself? What, what, are, what are you feeding that? When have you last eaten? And what I want to say to you with respect to this illustration is that you were made, the very you of you, your soul was made to feed on Christ. And you are starving for him. You may not know it. And many of us go long, abusive stretches in our lives without eating and drinking of Him. And what violence have you done to your own soul by depriving yourself of that nutrient? Even you, dear Christian. And I want to clarify what I mean by feeding on Christ. It's very simple. The principle is this. Your heart feeds on what it trusts in most. 
going to be very important as we move through this that you keep in mind, I'm just going to reference feeding on Christ or feasting on Him, the feast of the new covenant, and what it means for the Christian to feed on Christ isn't literal cannibalism. It is your heart, your soul, the very you of you, feeds on what it trusts in most. Just like your body needs physical food because it is physical, your heart needs spiritual food because it is spiritual. You are spiritual. So you see how silly it is, as we saw last week, that there were those within this church that he was writing to who were trying to feed their heart, their spiritual heart, by eating literal foods. They're they're trying to go back to the food laws or the ceremonial sacrifice foods in the law of Moses to feed the heart. It's silly. And the author is essentially saying that. I tried to think of an illustration to show how silly this is, and there isn't really one. But the best I could come up with is that'd be like trying to to feed your your ivy plant at home with steak and a Coca-Cola classic. It's not going to work. And even that illustration breaks down because eventually the the steak would decompose and it might help the, the soil. Trying to feed your heart of hearts with literal food is sillier than that. So the author responds to this silly attempt to feed the heart, the soul, with foods by saying, that won't work, obviously. And now that you mention it, we have something better. Better than being fed even by the most special and sacred sacrifice imaginable. He's essentially saying, you guys, are, you guys are out there trying to strengthen your heart with food? And he responds by saying, essentially, and this is where we get to verse 10, are you really hungry? Do you realize your soul is famished? You see that your heart needs strengthening, right? That, that's the assumption, that they, they need strengthening. They're trying to strengthen their heart with something. And he shows them where the real food is. Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The first thing that we need to know about this table that's been prepared for us, the food that is available to us, is that it is exclusive. The New Covenant feast is exclusive. And before we talk about the reasons why it's exclusive and dig into this text, I do need to help you understand the connection between this idea of a feast and the sacrifice, because uh, the word feast isn't in this text. You might be sitting there thinking, what what is he talking about, this feast? That's not in the text. Uh, Has Joshua run off the rails? Uh, But this is a major point to help us understand the whole passage, actually from verses... uh, Seven all the way to uh, 17, perhaps. This, this concept of feast is in the background. Because biblically, when we're talking about sacrifices and we're talking about eating, those ideas are inseparable from the concept of a feast, a religious feast. So there are two patterns of feasting being compared. Because everyone, whether you know it or not, is trying to feed Their heart. You are trying to feed your heart, your soul, with something. And this is what some in the church where he was writing to, they they wanted to go back the old way and feed their hearts through the Old Testament sacrificial meals. And the appeal of going back the old way is, look at all the feasts they have. Look Look at all the cool festivals that they have. And that's not a silly thing. That's that's a real appeal. Many people are leaving the faith and going to other religions or false gospels within what would be considered broader Christianity because they have better feasts. They have more fellowship around meals and, and better liturgy and sacredness connected with food. I'm not making that up. And so that's the same appeal here. And so the Christian is left at a point of of. Uh, a decision. What, what do I do? What do we have? They, the, the Jews, they've, they've got the Passover, they have the Feast of Tabernacles, they have all that stuff and all this food and celebration and rejoicing. What do we have? That's where verse 10 comes in. We have an altar 
from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Because the truth is, there is only one food that only comes from the one altar that can ever truly strengthen your heart. The grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the only thing that can really help you and feed your soul. Now, hopefully you get this concept of the feast and and that sacrificing and eating and all that language. I don't want to go through the text again to highlight all the places that either a sacrifice is mentioned or eating is mentioned, but it's all throughout the passage. So hopefully you get that the feast, the, the ceremonial covenantal feast is the backdrop of this text. So now that we understand that, let's, let's talk about what that means for us. We need to understand the main point of this verse, verse 10, is that it is exclusive. And that should be startling. Because I've already told you that there is only one food and there's only one thing, as I said last week, under heaven and earth that can really strengthen your heart. There's one sustenance for your soul that can actually help. It's Jesus himself, and I'm telling you now, it's exclusive. You're telling me that it's only open to certain people? Yes. So who is it open to? Who is welcome? In short, it's those who trust in Jesus. Which is obvious, in a sense, because we saw above, uh, your heart feasts on whatever it trusts in. And he says, we have a right. Are you in the we? Are you you the part of the we that has access to this altar to eat from? The only food that can strengthen your heart? Easiest way to answer that is this. Do you trust in Jesus? Is he the foundation of your hope for all of life and for all of living? The true Christian is not someone who has it all together. It's not someone who is perfect or has perfect desires or even trusts perfectly. Far from it. But it is one who understands, deep down in your very bones, that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy. So, the Feast of the New Covenant is exclusive to those who actually show up hungry for the food that has been prepared. Moms, you know exactly what this is like. You spend time and energy and resources preparing a nice dinner And those who show up to the feast might not be interested in what you have worked on and prepared for them. They want the junk food sometimes. And they petition you with prayers and supplications. Give us something else. I saw a sign the other day essentially saying something like this. Eat what's been prepared or starve. That's what's happening here. If you show up to the feast of the new covenant, if you're, if you're coming to Christ, but you're not interested in his body and blood as the food that your soul needs, then the dinner's not for you. It's only open that that very food for your soul that you need is only available if you actually come wanting it. The, new feast, the feast of the new covenant is exclusive. We have a real feast. It's the only one that will actually feed your soul. So whether or not we have as good of parties or, or festival meals as other religions or sects within Christianity have, we've got access to the only real food. We know where the food is for our hearts. We have something better and exclusive. Not even the high priest has a right to eat from this altar. Those who served the tent, they have no right to eat it. You have a VIP, by invitation only, private meal for your heart prepared by God himself in the body and blood of Jesus. Why does this matter? Uh, Why is it better? What makes the food of this feast of the new covenant superior to anything else? Look at verse 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What we need to know from this is not only is the 
feast of the new covenant in Christ's body and blood exclusive to those who trust in him, but it is better. It's better than all the pageantry of the old covenant. And it's better because it's founded on a superior sacrifice. And that's obvious. Hopefully, if you followed along at all with our study through Hebrews, you know that Jesus' sacrifice is better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It's obvious, but it's important to revisit four reasons that are obvious in these two verses. Number one, because the, 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 the Feast of the New Covenant is superior, it's founded on a better sacrifice because it is the reality not the shadow. It is the reality, not the shadow. Just look at verses 11, verses 12. Verses, verse 12. You have the ceremony and the festival on the one hand versus the most amazing, glorious, and awful thing that has ever happened in all of human history. Real life isn't scripted. The shadow or the play in the Old Testament was, was kind of a pageantry, a show uh, happening over and over and over again, uh, done by the priests, no less, by, by the priests that God had appointed. But when we get to verse 12, when God does the real thing and not the shadow, it's himself. And he's using all the wheels of human history and all the moving parts of the universe, even the sun and moon itself. There are earthquakes and empires and the enemy himself as participants in this unfolding as God accomplishes his purposes in human history that he had planned before and ordained to do with his son, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It's the reality. It's not the shadow. So as special as it would feel to eat of the Passover lamb, like imagine if you were able to to procure a time machine And you traveled all the way back to the night before the Exodus, there with all the people of Israel, and you got to join in a household and eat of one of those lambs that was sacrificed prior to the Exodus. The author of Hebrews here is saying, that doesn't hold a candle to what you have access to by faith in the body and blood of Jesus. That, even if you were able to go back in time and experience that, that won't strengthen your heart That won't feed your soul. Christ will. We have an access to this altar. It would be like preferring the appetizer over the main course. Or preferring a preview or trailer versus the real movie. It would be like preferring a picture of the Grand Canyon as opposed to the real thing. It would be like preferring the dating phase over marriage. That's the contrast he wants us to feel. The second reason that this sacrifice is superior, because it's Christ himself. In verse 11, he says, those animals, it's almost like he's, he's dissing them in a way. Versus, so Jesus, in the beginning of verse 12, he uses his personal name as, as kind of a mic drop. You got those animals, plural in number, versus Jesus over here. It's Christ himself, not a lamb. And even in chapter 10, verse 4, the author himself says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here's here's what this means. Because of sin, someone has to die. Because of sin, someone has to die. The wages of sin is death. And God showed in the repetitive nature of the sacrifices offered under the old written code that those animals, those animals, weren't cutting it. I had to go over and over and over and over again. The wages of sin is death. I thought sin was dealt with. Nope. Someone had to die, and we need a final solution. So here comes Jesus. I will die for you. Trust me. That is what it means to eat of his body and drink of his blood. You're essentially saying, I am no longer trusting in any other sacrifice. Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Number three, this is the third reason that this sacrifice is superior, why the feast of the new covenant is superior, because it's a willing victim 
not a dumb and unwilling animal. What, what did those sacrificial animals have to do with your sin? Do they love you? Are they aware of, of God's ways of atoning for sin and the necessity of blood? Of course not. Jesus, on the other hand, of his own will, takes our full sin upon himself out of love for us and out of love for the Father, first and foremost, with full knowledge of every sin you would ever commit. Full knowledge of the very lowest level of filth and flirtation with the enemy that you would ever plunge yourself to. Full knowledge of every act of treason and spiritual whoredom you would ever commit and continue to persist in. And he went to the cross willingly and died to make an end of all of that sin by paying the penalty under the wrath of God so that it would not separate from you, you from him anymore. So obviously, the Feast of the New Covenant is superior because we feed on the very blood and the very body of Christ through trust in Him. It's not a meal made for the flesh by some unwilling animal. It's a feast made for your very soul, your heart of hearts. The fourth reason it is a superior feast, a superior sacrifice, is because it actually worked. It actually worked. If you look at verse 11, he says that those animals were were put forward as a sacrifice for sin. It could be rendered with respect to sin or because of sin. And then you look in verse 12, in order to sanctify the people with his own blood. The blood of those animals was brought into the holy places to be sure. They were keeping the commands of God, that God gave them year after year under the threat of judgment if they stopped. The sin ledger was reset in some sense because of the Day of Atonement, but not because of the actual blood of those animals, but because of God's patience. But Christ has accomplished what could not be accomplished under the law. He did it. It's done. He has sanctified the people. So we've seen that the Feast of the New Covenant is exclusive. It's only for those who trust in Jesus. It is a superior feast than all of the Old Testament feasts and any other religion you could put forward combined. It is better because it's a better sacrifice and it actually deals with sin and it's what your heart needs. Your starving heart. So how do we keep the feast of the new covenant? What do we do That's the natural question that flows from all of this, I think. Is is this theology of the new feast, the feast of the new covenant, very practical? Absolutely it is. And I want to show you why. And here's how this this is all linked together. In verse 13, he says, therefore. So you have all, all this discussion of the superiority of Christ's sacrifice as the way that our heart is strengthened. All of that discussion of the atonement and our feeding on Christ to strengthen our hearts. And then he says, therefore. So he's not changing the subject, even though it feels that way. And it's hard to preach and teach through a text like this because there's so many things going on. But he says, therefore. So this is built on the fact that we have a right to eat from this altar. So let's eat from it. That's where we get this verse 13. So how do we eat from this altar? Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. The way that we keep the feast, number one, is by bearing the reproach of Christ. What does this mean? Well, for starters, it does not mean making pilgrimage to the Holy Land or going to the literal place of Golgotha where Christ was sacrificed on our behalf. That's not what it means because he says, let us go outside the camp. And he says in verse 12 that Jesus went outside the gate. 
Okay, so, so there's an intentional discontinuity here. Don't want to get all into it. But when the author wrote this book, there was no longer any camp. Okay, he, he's alluding all the way back to the Exodus and the, the wandering in the wilderness of those animals burned outside the camp. So he's, he's alluding to the theological significance of going outside the place where the people were to identify with Christ, the one who was sacrificed for us. Let's ask this question. This will help us understand. What is the reproach of Christ? It's not so much about where we're leaving. What's the camp? What's the gate? Where, is it the city? That, that's not a helpful question. The more helpful question is, what is the reproach of Christ? Because whatever that is, wherever that is, that's where we need to go because that's where Jesus is. And keep in mind, this is how we keep the feast. In a sense, think of it this way. Outside the camp is where he has prepared the table for us, where he is under the reproach he endured. The world is hostile to Christ. They are at odds. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you make yourself a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So going outside the camp for us, the way we should understand this, is that we might have to distance ourselves from all sorts of things to bear all kinds of hardship and opposition willingly to identify ourselves with Christ. You might have to end a friendship. You might have to quit a job. You might have to endure loss. You might have to leave all comfort. You will experience isolation. From the world. Your own family may come between you and Christ and his people. That was the context for the people here. These were people who were Jewish by origin and wanted to keep the feast to remain part of their people and their extended family. And the call of Christ is leave that, come outside the camp, and be with Jesus. You will have to make hard choices. You're going, are you going to live your life for yourself? Are you going to identify with Christ, stand for Him where He is for the sake of His people, and let come what may, for better or worse, bear with the consequences? This is, in short, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, and I'll just insert this as an interlude. This is how we keep the feast. This is how your heart is strengthened by Christ himself, by identifying with him and bearing the reproach that he endured. Jesus himself says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. So for you, it may not be giving up a job or a career path or dreams. You've just got to deny yourself. All of us do. And that is the hardest thing to deny. Many a person have given up many things and have not yet denied themselves. And that's the summons of following Jesus. No matter where you are or how old you are or how young you are, the summons to follow Christ is to deny yourself. And then he further says, Jesus himself, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This isn't a higher version of Christian living. It is Christianity. I wonder how many of us would have left our nets. You have a moment to decide. Come and I will make you fishers of men. What would you do? All your future, all your plans, all your uh, wisdom for the rest of your life, completely on a platter. And Jesus says, give it all to me immediately. What would you do? What did Christ call you to give up to follow him? What is he asking you to give up today? How is he leading you? Even just on the basis of his example and the pages of the book that you're holding in your lap or on your device, his example of his life of prioritizing the glory of the Father is normative for you. That is what you should be like too. Anyone who loves Jesus should walk the way that he walked. 
Whatever it is, he's calling you to deny yourself today. Go outside the camp, bear the reproach he endured, and there your heart will be strengthened by the very food of his body and blood. We go to where the food is, outside the camp. That's where the table is. Outside the camp of this world, even denying our very selves in order to bear the reproach of Christ so that we may eat the feast prepared for us. The friends of the world, the people who choose all her guilty pleasures, are not welcome at the feast because they are trusting in other things. Verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is the second way that we keep the feast of the new covenant by embracing our status as sojourners. Embracing our status as sojourners. And this is really an extension of verse 13. He says, for, so the reason that we should go outside the camp and identify with Christ and be happy to bear his reproach is because here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. And this is how your heart is strengthened by the grace of God in Christ, by seeking the city that is to come. If you feel how hungry you are in your heart of hearts and you know where the real food is in Christ himself, the real and only food that will strengthen your heart, then you will be seeking the city that is to come where the final feast will be held. So there are two aspects of being a sojourner in this passage. They're very simple. There are the two clauses that build up the sentence. For here we have no lasting city, on the one hand. So it's acknowledging that here is not home until here is remade completely. Here is not home until here is remade completely. And then the other half is actually actively seeking the kingdom that is to come. So the first part is an acknowledgement An awareness that we don't have any lasting inheritance here. Our inheritance is elsewhere. Here, nothing's going to feed our soul except Christ as he invades the present from the future through faith in him and by his spirit. And then we seek the coming of the kingdom where the wedding supper of the Lamb will be held. This is an amazing text. I wish I had, I mean, this is a sermon series in itself. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Is it true of you? If you were given two sentences, one or two sentences to summarize your life and what your life's about, and then someone were to play on the speaker or quote this passage right after you finished summarizing your life in one or two sentences, would it sound like they were changing the subject? Summarize your life, one or two sentences, and then this is spoken over the loudspeaker. Would it sound like the subject is changing? If it would, change your life today. Because this is you if you're a Christian. And if you're not, if if you can't find yourself in this text, then you're living at odds with the work of the Spirit in you, and you are starving your heart. Don't do that. And why? Why should we find ourselves in this text? Because it's not going to work. He's already said up above in the text we looked at last week, it's not benefited those devoted to them. Any other way that you try to strengthen your heart, it's not going to work. It it, it doesn't. You're still hungry. Your, Your soul craves Jesus Christ, so go to him. And it's going to burn up anyway. I mean, whatever city you seek, however successful you are in gaining it, it's all going to be gone. I mean, Solomon has already done the experiment for you. It doesn't help. It doesn't help your heart of hearts. Don't waste your time trying to reenact the experiment. Is it true of me? Do I seek the city that is to come? How would your checkbook answer that question? What would an auditor say if you were to be audited? Would they say, this one, he or she seeks the kingdom that is to come, seeks the city that is to come? 
If that feels overbearing, remember two things. One, if you're a believer, then His Spirit is at work in you right now to make you will and do His good pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Number two, this is how we keep the feast. That hunger of soul, the tiredness that can only be resolved by the grace of God in Christ, seeking the city that is to come is how your heart is strengthened. These are the things that you and I can do, the way that we can commit to live our lives so that our heart is fed. I think many of us just walk around with a a tiredness of soul that we can just barely quantify most days. And this is how we're helped by seeking the city that is to come. But where to start? And how is this a feast? It sounds like a lot of work. If you've ever put on a feast, you know that it is work. Um, But where's the encouragement? What what summons us to live this way in a way that doesn't feel like bludgeoning? Look at verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The third way that we keep the feast of the new covenant is by Christ-centered worship. And what I mean by that is not worship in the sense of a Sunday morning, though that's definitely included, but all of life, he says continually, is to be a Christ-centered worship service. All of your life. So understand this. This is amazing. And I'm perpetually stunned by these passages. The altar is closed. The author of Hebrews has made that very clear. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus doesn't die perpetually. He died once for all, and it's over. There's no need for him to go and suffer again. But here, it says that we offer up a sacrifice of praise. And this is, what this is an allusion to is the altar of incense. So where you have the sacrifice for Uh, sins in the temple or the tabernacle was the big bronze thing where they burned the animals either inside or outside the camp depending on what was happening but here the allusion is to the altar of incense that always burned whether they were holding a feast or not but especially when they were holding a feast there was always incense brought and it was always burning and carrying up a pleasing aroma to God it was right in front of the veil in the, whole, in the holy place. The, the last thing before one would enter the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. And this is what's being referenced here. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Instead of an exact recipe for incense, we're given this simple statement. Praise. And then he defines it. Fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And he says, continually offer up. And <laughs> this might be discouraging because, oh, that's no big deal. Just continually, always, 24-7 be offering up praise to God. That's not a big deal. But there is encouragement and clarity here for us. Because he defines what he means. He says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The only name that is mentioned with any proximity is the name of Jesus. He says, through him, meaning through Jesus, let us offer up praise to God, meaning the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. He says, through him and then his name on either side of the praise to God. It must be Christ-centered worship. And the idea, I think, is that you can live each moment of each day with a posture of gratitude and love and praise to God through Christ Jesus himself. And as you do that, your heart is strengthened. You are fed. You aren't necessarily bringing anything to the table to benefit God as you praise God continually, being aware of His grace towards you in Jesus all the time. You are strengthened. And isn't that true? I mean, that's just experientially true. When you live that way, when you function that way in your mind, you are strengthened. It's better for us, and we know it. This is why we're told to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated. Is your heart hungry? What are you trusting in? 
Are you trusting in something other than Christ? Even more basic question than are you hungry? Where, where are you setting your mind? Because that, whatever it is, is what you're trying to feed your heart with. If it's not Christ and God's work in Christ for you, as continually as you can, then you're trying to feed your soul with whatever it is that you occupy your head with. Whether that's work, your family, the chaos in the world, that stuff is what you're trying to feed your heart with if you're setting your mind on it. So this idea of continually, as the altar of incense would continually burn, offering a pleasing aroma to God all of life. And this has so many implications. I wish we could get into them Talk about all the implications of continually. This means that anything and everything that we're called to do or have to do as Christians can be praise. It can be Christ-centered worship. But I'll mention just one. Is this your heart on a Sunday morning? Is the zeal of your soul, Christ must be exalted. Christ must be praised. Christ must be lifted high. Is that your motivation when you sing? Do you sing loud enough to be appropriate in the presence of Christ? Because that's what we're doing. Do you sing with joy? Do you command your soul, I will hope in God? That's the attitude that we need to come into this, in His presence with His people to do. Because we're continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to Him. It's about Him. Verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this is the only negative command in our text today, and it's paired with a positive. So don't neglect to do good, share what you have, and then he gives the reason for it. For or because such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And I've compacted this all together, I think, in the last way that we keep the Feast of the New Covenant is by loving one another. I love this verse. Again, it's a series unto itself. But it takes this whole consideration of the Feast of the New Covenant, which I understand is a difficult concept. It's hard to wrap your minds around how this maps to what we see in the Old Testament and all that that's going on and and the sacrifice of Christ and feeding on his body and blood, what does that mean? And how does faith relate to it? Understand, it's difficult to hold all together. And you've done really well. This is about as difficult as it gets, I promise. But this text, verse 16, brings it all down back into the realm of what you have. This is the last way that we keep the feast. Even though the physical food is not what your heart needs... It's not how your heart is strengthened. When you share what you have with God's people, you are keeping the new covenant feast. When that is done in faith in Christ. As you acknowledge His name and share what you have and serve one another, that is keeping the feast. Do you see? When we live the life of faith in Christ, when we acknowledge His name and praise Him, it will result in generosity towards others. This is exactly what Luke records in Acts chapter 2 and 4. They believed in Jesus. They realized what it was they had in Christ, and it immediately led them to be generous. So the idea here is that you have been given whatever you have, all that you have, For the sake of the body of Christ. Even the spiritual gifts that God imparts to your soul by His working in His Spirit aren't for you. They're for the body. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. So everything you have. like This isn't a 10% text here, right? Share what you have. Meaning all that you have with the body of Christ. So what do you have? What are you to share? Understand this. This this is going to sound odd. (laughs) A bag of chips, when shared with the people of God, out of trust in Jesus, is a more pleasing sacrifice to God than anything offered in the temple or the tabernacle itself. Do you believe that? 
Because it's through faith that we offer sacrifices pleasing to God. The blood of bulls and goats don't please God. But these sacrifices, such sacrifices, are pleasing to God. So when you share what you have, regardless of what it is that you have, it is more pleasing to him than all of that. That's stunning. That changes everything, I think, at least, for the Christian and for our lives. So what do you have? If what you have is very little in your own eyes, share what you have. If all you have is need, share what you have. That should be a huge encouragement. And people typically operate this way. When we're maybe a net negative or we're more needy than we are helpful, we kind of back away from the community. We back away and we don't enter in. But the idea here is that whatever you have, share it. So if what you have is need and sickness and and an inadequacy, then you've got to share that. Because it's been given to you for the sake of the body. Maybe all you have is struggle and lack and need. Then rejoice because you're right here in the text. Share what you have. None of us really have anything of our own to share. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's a rhetorical question. You don't have anything that you didn't receive from God, His own gifting to you. So if it's a loaf of bread... A small biblical insight, a spiritual gift, an ability, energy, need, or just the powerful ministry of presence. The summons is to share what you have. And as we share what we have with each other, from the food on the table that we share when we have a potluck, to the prayers that we pray for each other, to being vulnerable and sharing our needs, that is the feast that we keep. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. As we share what we have under his lordship, we are keeping the feast. So even though it isn't food that will strengthen your heart, food when received and shared because of Jesus will strengthen your heart. As we seek the city that is to come, and as we wait for its coming, we go to Christ outside the camp. We bear the reproach of this world, the flesh, and the devil. And as we do so, we trust that everything done for him, everything done for his people, will echo into eternity for our eternal joy and his everlasting glory. So are you hungry this morning? This would be a final application just to do some soul checking. Are you hungry this morning for Christ himself? Peter says, as newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that is able to save you. Do you long for Christ? Christ is not there for you as something to eat and partake of when you became a Christian and then you're fine and dandy unto all eternity. He will be the tree of life ever sustaining us into eternity. Do you feel your hunger for him? Now, if you don't at all, there's only a few things that can mean and neither of them are good. Reawaken yourself. Wake up, Christian, to your hunger for the Lord. If you are his, you do hunger him. Whether you know it or not, whether you've suppressed it enough or not, the enemy doesn't want you to know that you crave Jesus Christ. As a summons to all of us, really, but particularly the young people among us. When you look at verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The world expects very little of you. The world expects you to use what you have, your energy, your zeal, your freedom for yourself. Don't let the lowest bar of expectations from parents or pastors determine what it means for you to seek the city that is to come. If you're in Christ, that verse is for you. So a good first step would be to memorize it and to figure out what it means for you to seek the city that is to come. The world will just let you and appeal to you and billions of dollars are being spent to convince you to seek the city that is here and not the city that is to come. 
another application, I think, is did you catch the us? <laughs> this could be a whole other sermon itself, and you might be surprised knowing the, the things I like to emphasize in preaching that I didn't call attention to this. Uh, these commands are for us. Therefore, let us go outside the camp. Let us do these things. And like I said, it's just, it changes everything, really. When you realize, think of it this way. If you knew that one in our congregation were on the brink of death by hunger, what would you do? How much would that change your day today if you knew that they were that hungry? But realize there are people in this room who are starving, so spiritually malnourished because they don't know the way to feed on Christ. They haven't been lifted up to him in a long time, maybe because of their own sin or because of their own ignorance or just because of we're so busy that we don't have time to prepare meals for our soul. Do you care if your brother or sister is starving for Christ? How much time do we spend preparing meals for our bodies, but not for our souls? Are you abusing your own soul? How long has it been since you have feasted on the body and blood of Christ. And this obviously has implications for the Lord's Supper. You might also be wondering, why aren't you talking about the Lord's Supper? But this is the theology behind that meal. I considered having the Lord's Supper this Sunday, but I wanted us to focus on what it all means from a universal and cosmic perspective of feeding on Christ so that next time we take it, we have those ideas in our minds. That's the meal we celebrate. And then lastly, what city are you seeking? There are many manners of life that are completely acceptable and respectable within the Christian community that are nothing but seeking this city. And I don't mean Coeur d'Alene. What city are you seeking? If you were to line up If you were to define, if someone were to give you an essay, to write an essay on the manner of life that seeks the city that is here, this life, these ways of living, whatever it is, versus seeking the city that is to come, which one would more closely describe your life? Which city are you seeking? And lastly, just as a summons, the table's been prepared All this time, there is Christ outside the gate, outside the camp with a feast prepared for our souls until the great city descends. And it's ready to be eaten. And we're so distracted and interested in other things that we won't feed our very hearts. So come to him, dear Christian. Come to him, unbeliever. Know that it is there. The meal is ready for you to take through trusting in him. Come to the feast. Keep the covenant feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace to give us uh, harder texts like this to mine and to not dismiss or not to break up and miss the major points. And so I pray that it was helpful for your people and that we would be obedient to it and find all that we need, everything we need to strengthen our hearts in Christ himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.